Hey everybody, it's Andy Little here from the EM Over Easy podcast, bringing you isms part two. Now this is the second part of a conversation we had at ACOAP Scientific Assembly with special guests, Charlene Hidaiti and George Willis. It's recorded with Drew Kalnow, myself, and our fourth host, John Casey. So here it is, and we hope you enjoy it. So Charlene and George, so you're working a shift, and we've all had these shifts where we go into a shift, we get started, we pre-gamed, we're doing our charting, you kind of hear this belligerent patient being wheeled to your side, right? And the patient, as they're being wheeled in a wheelchair by one of your techs, you kind of hear some off-colored comments and it's towards your tech. And then they get in the room and nursing goes in to triage the patient. And your nurses, like all nurses, are very, very polite. They're trying to do the right thing for the patient. But there just is this continual back and forth between where the nurse is trying to be polite and then the patient spews out some form of awfulness, whether it's, you know, a racial slur, a sexual slur, whatever they're identifying as the problem is. And then as a physician, you get up and you decide, I'm going to go in and take care of this. And so how do you go about that? Wow. <laughs> so I've, I've experienced this in, in several ways. Being from Appalachia and having trained for medical school in Appalachia, I've actually had the, I guess, the honor of being called multiple things at my medical school by patients, never by colleagues or nurses or anything like that, but certainly by patients. Um, some ignorantly and some non-ignorantly, I will say that there was a a veteran at the VA hospital who said, I've never been taken care of by a color doctor before. Now he was again, ignorant, not, he wasn't saying it maliciously. It was, he had never seen an African-American in real life before, certainly not one who would be taking care of him. And so my, you know, I went home and told my wife that, and she was like, Oh my gosh, did you, did you yell at him or punch him or anything? And I'm like, no, <laughs> we have to take care of patients. We do no harm. And so that that's, that's literally how I approached that. So growing up in that area and, and doing medical school in that area, I, I did see and hear a lot of that. And then I moved to Baltimore, which is what some people call chocolate city. <laughs> so there's a lot more African-American patients. So I've certainly seen a lot less of that directed towards me, but certainly directed towards my colleagues and nursing staff. And a lot of times it's, especially now that I, I practice in a city with predominantly Af African-Americans, it's almost where I feel like I have to come in like a superhero to a certain extent where I can come in and say, hey, I'm African-American too. You certainly are not going to tolerate. I'm not going to tolerate you talking to the nursing staff, talking to my residents, talking to my colleagues, my attending colleagues in that manner. And a lot of times it's in a method of for them trying to get a point across or to obviously sometimes try to demand things. But I think that the, the overall impetus for me when I go into those rooms is to find out why they feel the way that they do, because as everybody is aware at this point in time, there is this systemic problem of racism, not necessarily only towards African-Americans, but I think in general in this country that people feel one way or another against a certain member of another race or creed or gender or sexual preference or gender preference. And, and it's, it's certainly a problem in medicine as well that needs to be addressed. And so I'm really happy that we're talking about this. This is another one that uh, I just I had this like visceral reaction. So I think there are the patients who are either altered, drunk, whatever. And those are not people that I can engage with in that moment, right? I'm not going to be able to do anything. I need to address whatever's going on with them and expedite their care and disposition them, whether it's disposition to sedation, disposition to the ICU, disposition out the door, or however that's going to work. But the patient and kind of what they're coming in with is kind of the, the first part in triaging 
the response. So, you know, someone who's, you know, super sick or whatever, I think, you know, you just have to address what's going on with them and and get in there and, and do what you need to do. I think the harder part are the ones that are fine. The ones that are not really having an emergency, they're there and maybe they're using your ED as a urgent care or for a medication refill or whatever. And then something comes up, whether it's, you know, a racist remark, a sexist remark, you know, a homophobic remark, whatever ism they have in that moment. And I think somebody had said this earlier, which is that you're not going to change that person in that moment and who they are as, as a person, but you can change their potentially their interaction with the staff. And sometimes when it's happening to somebody else, your response, at least my response is amplified when it's directed at a student, at a resident, at a, at a tech or a nurse, than if it's coming at me, you know, particularly when they're like, I don't want a woman doctor or whatever, you know, if it's coming at me, my response is typically a little different than when it's happening to somebody else. And I am out of the chair and going in there to figure out what's happening and how I'm going to fix this. And then I think, especially when it's happening to someone else, there's that moment where you have to kind of to kind of debrief in the moment. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? And these are our options. And I can tell you what I want to do, but that person also needs to be part of that decision-making. Because if there's going to be a confrontation and I'm calling security and that person's leaving because they are absolutely fine and stable, you know, the person that this is happening to also needs to have a voice in this process and be able to, to talk about, you know, how this is making them feel. So the, the first triage process for me is sick or not sick. If they're sick, then I need to fix this and, and take care of the patient. And sometimes that means stepping out and letting someone else take care of them because they don't want a female doctor or whatever, just switching up the provider. And if they're not sick, then if it's happening to a student or a resident or somebody else, then that's a conversation I'm going to have with that person. And then the approach is going to be together. We're, we're in this together and we're going to get rid of this patient somehow, but you have to be a part of that process as well in terms of how we handle it. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback on something Tarlin said, which I think is very, very important because I've had a situation where I was actually attacked in the emergency department by a woman patient, a female patient. And it's one of the reasons why I, I agree with Tarlin, I'm not going to be able to get an assessment of why they feel the way that they do or be able to change the way that they feel. But sometimes I like to know why they feel the way that they do, because it can sometimes give some some insight. And so to, to give you the whole story on this patient, she was a female patient. I walked into the room to see her and she said, I don't want to be taken care of by an effing male doctor. Now I could have looked at that as maybe she's maleist, or I guess that's the way you would describe it. She's, she's sexist against men, but, and there was nothing I could do to talk to her to get her to even engage with me whatsoever. And the more I tried to, to kind of get assess, assessment of what was going on with her, it's just continued to escalate and escalate and escalate to the point where she started actually throwing things at me, started swinging her fists, really trying to hit me. And subsequently, the nurses called security and had her arrested. Well, it turned out that she had been raped multiple times by men, brothers, uncles. And so she did not trust the male gender. In that circumstance, you know, I could have taken the, well, let's escalate things, let's sedate her and make her, you know, knock her out so that we can take care of her. But she was completely, completely nervous about dealing with a male physician. And so when it's simply just blatant racism or, you know, blatant sexism, um, oftentimes I take the approach that Tarlin does, which is the, you're either sick or you're not sick. And if you're not sick, guess what? <laughs> Out the door you go. <laughs> there is no reason to interact with you or have any type of escalation whatsoever, because more than likely somebody's going to get hurt 
or injured or some other bad outcome is going to occur. But if they're sick, it becomes really, really difficult. And what to do next? You know, do you get another provider? And that circumstance with this female, thankfully she wasn't sick, but there were only male physicians. It just happened to be a day where there were residents and they were in conference. There were nobody in the apartment, but two attendings who were both male. And there was nothing else that we could do for her. So if she had been really sick and there was nobody else, you know, do we call in sick call and say, hey, I just need you to come in and see one patient and then you can go home. You're the only female who's on sick call. Uh, that that makes things a little bit more difficult. So I, I try to get a little bit of an assessment of what the problem is. And then if I can't fix that problem, then if they're not sick, then bye. You know, we get patients, we get, you know, Muslim women who only want to be examined yep. by a, a, mm-hmm. a woman provider. Yep. I can't argue with that. Sure. Or the vice versa. You get a Muslim man who's coming in with a GU complaint and they don't want a woman physician. Yep. And I totally understand. And if we can accommodate, you're right. The underlying reason matters. Um, and if, but if it's just blatant racism or sexism, then that's, that's a, it's a hard no. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about in the, the first section, there's setting the rules of engagement. This is a behavior that will or won't be tolerated in my emergency department. If, if you can accommodate the patient for understandable reasons, then absolutely. Sometimes uh, we can't accommodate and we have to go down that road. You both mentioned as you were talking about this, the systemic issues of isms in, in medicine. So beyond just a single encounter in the emergency department, you're both educators, uh, have a, a pretty uh, big voice, both in your programs, but also on a, uh, a national stage. How do you approach approach the idea of isms, whether it's racism, sexism, ageism, it's xenophobia in general, when you're talking with your residents and we're talking about medicine in general, because it's such an important conversation for us to have. And if ever it has been more important, I'm not aware because coronavirus and our current kind of political situation has really exposed too many isms right now. So I think the biggest point that you brought up is in terms of education. I think education is paramount for this. And I think the biggest part of education has to do with implicit bias. That is probably the quintessential, if not just self kind of reflection test to figure it out. Some people just inherently will say, I am not racist. And then you reveal to them their implicit bias. And a lot of them have the revelation, oh my gosh, I am racist. (laughs) And obviously the goal or sexist or, you know, religious or whatever, you know, ism that there is. And once they recognize that a lot of times people will either change the way they think or attempt to change the way they think, or they'll just accept the fact that they have these implicit biases that exist and to try and repress them as much as they can. And so I think one of the big things that I do first is to help people to understand that there is implicit bias. Once they understand that there's implicit bias and that it's there, and we all have it. I can't sit here as an honorable Christian African-American man and say that I have no implicit bias whatsoever. We all have implicit bias. It's about recognizing that you have implicit bias and then trying to either suppress it or to change the way that you think. There are people that we're not going to be able to change. There are residents who I've interacted with who are absolutely and 100% going to vote Republican or vote Democrat, or I am a conservative and I hate liberals. And, you know, if somebody comes in with a Biden-Harris hat, they're going to say, oh, no, I won't take care of that patient or vice versa. But to understand that that implicit bias is relevant and there, I think is, is the most important step. Having that training first, is important for our residents, but also to address anything from a systemic perspective. And so I try to role model for them how to take care of someone who may be coming in, subjecting the entire staff to, you know, sexism or racism and showing them how a physician should interact with those patients to say, I know that you're sick and I'm here to take care of you. You know, I've had residents walk up to me and say, I can't believe that you 
did that with that person? Why didn't you just kick them out? Or why didn't you just do this? Or why didn't you just do that? Because inherently our entire goal is to take care of patients. I don't care what they come to the emergency department with what baggage they carry. My job is to take care of them. So when they bring that baggage with them, I have to look past that baggage and still do what's best for the patient. And so helping them to understand that I think is hugely important for them as well. George, one thing, and I know, and I know what you meant, and I think everyone here probably knew what you meant, but just in case there are some learners that are naive to implicit bias, sure. just one thing to kind of clarify, because the revelation that most people have is when they look at their results, they go, oh my God, I'm a racist. Remember, racism is a pattern of behavior, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So, and what you're saying is exactly right. We all have implicit biases. What shocks you is that you have them and that you can have them against people that look like you and mm-hmm. think like you and act like you. And it really is uh, dramatic. I, I am with you. I think uh, when I first started looking at that research back in the day, and now it's it's becoming more and more part of training how important it is. And it's to recognize you know, the, the isms that we see every day, to Drew's point, his question about where you see it. I think about this one all the time. I I see it every time we talk about a chest pain patient and someone says atypical chest pain. And you go, what do you mean when you say atypical chest pain? And they give a list of things that they mean. But what they really mean is you weren't a white old man in the 50s when we did the research. And so this systemic permutations and the things where not only is it about not allowing it to happen in your presence, but to be keenly aware that it's systemically there and you have to constantly push back against it. Some days, quite frankly, feels exhausting. You feel like you're never going to win. You're never going to get it right. And you never feel good enough at the end of the day. That's why I enjoy having folks like you around to help remind me that we all, we all struggle with it and all encounter it. It truly is. We practice medicine, but we practice our own biases too. And it's, it's kind of like a a bias mitigation. There's, thoughts that inherently will pop into my head when I see a patient. Ageism is one that I think misses us a a fair amount uh, in the emergency department. You know, somebody, a 90-year-old comes in and I look at the resident, I go, what's the chance of this patient going home? You know, 10% or less, right? Because, you know, it's, it's their age. But the reality is I've now biased myself towards a disposition on a patient that bringing them to the hospital might actually cause them significantly more harm. And so I guess to, to further this question, maybe a tiny bit further, is, is how do we really instill in our trainees or even our coworkers when we have this conversation to uh, <laughs> use the phrase that Casey used earlier, how do we check ourselves before I wreck ourselves when we come to come to these isms? It was Andy Little with the, Andy. Oh my yeah, gosh! It was I, I Andy. I can't give Andy credit for anything. No, he doesn't. This is this is a systemic problem. Let's give credit I'm glad where that credit it's, is due. Oh, Charlie, you're much nicer show. than I am. Yes, I, yeah. I have an I have an Andyism. Uh, if, if for any of our listeners that don't know that, when it comes to the the trainees with the with the residents, this came up on a few shifts ago with a resident that I was working, and it was based on a diagnosis that the patient already had, and so he did a you know a chart check before going into the room. And and he saw a, a particular diagnosis and then he he was sort of he was ready he had braced himself for a specific encounter of this going a specific way and he went in and i you know i wasn't privy to that in advance and he went in and he came out and then he as he was presenting it became very clear that he had a certain thought or a sentiment about what the patient was there for. And so we just had a very explicit conversation about his implicit bias. And I told him, I was like, you know, you had sort of 
prepped yourself and you went in with a certain perspective and a certain mentality and feeling about this patient. And now I need you to sort of divorce yourself from that. I need you to forget about that. And now give me a presentation that has zero emotion and just gives me the facts. Like, tell me what the patient actually said to you and what they're presenting with. Forget about the past stuff and what's in their chart. Tell me what they're here for right this second. And so he thought about it for a second. He's like, okay, I'm ready. And then he presented it and it, and it went quite well. And it had absolutely, you know, her, her presentation in the ED had absolutely nothing to do with her previous diagnosis, but we do it in medicine, even as providers for just even a diagnosis, you know, forget mm -hmm. about race and ethnicity and gender, you know, sexual orientation, just even just a diagnosis that's in the chart, you can go in with a certain bias. And, and I think having those open conversations, particularly with residents and students, you know, in the moment and acknowledging that we all have them, we all have these biases. And the important part is to recognize them so that then they don't impact how you care for the patient. I was just going to say, I think one of the biggest biases that we all have is number of times to the emergency department ism. <laughs> if someone's been to the emergency department 360 times in 365 days, we automatically, some of us, I've seen some of my residents actually go ahead and start typing up the discharge paperwork for the patient before they actually go into the room. And, you know, I say I have been burned so many times by people because of my own implicit biases, because, you know, that drunk patient who's been there. 300 times in the past two weeks and we're thinking to ourselves, oh, they're intoxicated and we miss a head bleed or, you know, someone who comes in. I actually missed a, um, a guy who came in all the time for alcoholism who actually was methanol toxicity, didn't drink alcohol because he can't get any more. So he started drinking methanol. And so those are the types of things where they, they act intoxicated and you put that implicit bias on them. <laughs> and sure enough, that bias kind of showing it's and rearing its ugly head. And the thing that I think people need to recognize is that, which is very similar to what John was trying to bring up, was that with these implicit biases, we oftentimes don't recognize them in themselves because they're implicit. And that's that's the definition of the word. Explicit biases are the ones that people pay attention to. Oh, well, I didn't use the N-word when I saw that person, or I didn't call her honey or sweetheart or lady friend or sugar mama when I went and saw the patient. So I must not be a sexist. Or I didn't say, oh my gosh, you're, you know, you have such a voluptuous body or something to that effect. That's that's completely inappropriate to say. You know, and certainly we see our patients who do that all the time. But with learners, when they don't say necessarily, well, I'm not racist or I'm not sexist, it doesn't mean that they don't have those implicit biases in their system. And that it, the implicit biases are the ones that really, really come to bite us in the end. Because again, we miss that patient who, a really good example that I always bring up when I talk about and lecture on implicit biases, the vice governor of Pennsylvania is like a 350 pound guy who has a tattoo of his zip code across his arm. He doesn't look like any vice governor or lieutenant governor that you've ever seen in your entire life. But... <laughs> He is a normal human being who, if I remember correctly, has an advanced degree, um, was the mayor of his city in, in Pennsylvania for a number of years, and now is the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. If you saw him walking down the street, you'd think he was a thug. You'd think he was probably a gangster who was selling drugs. But then he'd walk into the governor's mansion with a suit on and, and look like a normal human being. And very similar, I've had people who tell me I can't be a physician because I'm African-American. Well, Clearly, <laughs> I can and I am. And so when people recognize these implicit biases that they have, 
a lot of times, again, it's not going to change their mind, but it's certainly going to change their thinking and the way they they approach patients, which I think is the most important thing for, for everybody. Yeah. I kind of think to bring this home, whenever I talk to residents about this, I talk a lot about how our field of emergency medicine, because we are dealing with people on the worst days of their life, that's always the framework. I don't have room for my bias to get in the way of that because it just makes that encounter harder. And so it's the recognize you've got a problem, check yourself before you wreck yourself and find the things that are your thing. Because I think everybody on this call and everybody part of this conversation, we all have a thing. We have the one thing that like fibromyalgia, like name a disease, name, name a type of person that if they're our patient, it just causes this emotional roller coaster and learn how to temper that because all that does is distract you from the fact that this patient has something wrong with them and that you're in the business of figuring that out. And we don't have room or time to deal with our biases to cloud that at all. This has been such a great conversation about isms. If you want to hear a little bit more about it, Team Over Easy has actually covered some of these individual concepts. We just had an episode come out about bias and practicing in the emergency department. John Casey uh, led us through an incredible conversation about a year ago about forced attribution error, which uh, has so much to do with with biases. And also uh, an episode about normal, which is a very interesting word that we use in medicine and fits into this conversation. Tarlin, George, we've had other episodes with you. So for the people on this uh, call and also all our listeners, be sure to check out some of our previous stuff with these two awesome guests. Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, there you have it, folks. Isms Part 2. Don't forget to check us out on social media, whether it's on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. Subscribe to our newsletter and to get email updates from the podcast at emovereasy.com. And don't forget to check out our educational partner and sponsor of the podcast, acoep.org. 